20. We can begin reading in verse 43 in just a moment or two. Most of you know we've been working verse by verse through Mark's gospel, and so the reason why we're here this morning is this is the place we should be. All right, let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 43, Mark's gospel, chapter 14. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The man seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. His ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scripture must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Verse 51, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together, please. Father, because this true account we've just read is, is familiar to many of us, there is the distinct possibility we can easily be fooled into thinking that you have nothing really to say to us this morning, that all of this is just old hat. Please block that. And for others, this might be the very first time they've ever honestly had to consider these verses. And so in both possibilities, please grant us the gift of fresh eyes, of very teachable minds, of humble and noble hearts, letting your spirit be our teacher in order to understand your purpose behind this passage. And Father, I haven't been commissioned to preach Judas, but to preach Christ. Yes, Judas is part of the story, but Christ is everything. And he's the only one who has ever had unwavering obedience to you, which is what you have always required. Therefore, Christ alone is our only hope in life and in death. So, We need your strength this morning to see him, and I need so much help this morning to preach him. So please, Father, for Jesus' sake, glorify yourself and your Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, the sermon began with a question. The question was, how could someone spend three years, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in the presence of Jesus Christ, being taught by him, serve alongside him, miracles in his name performed, and still do what Judas did. He said, how could anyone be that evil, that wicked, that self-serving, callous, that hopeless? How could they? And, of course, the body of the talk was, in essence, here is how to not deny Jesus, or excuse me, yeah, how not deny Jesus like Judas. Okay. And apparently he found himself able to give his listeners lessons in order that in their strength 
they would be able to say, we would never do that to our dear Jesus. Perhaps not realizing that in saying that, they actually sound like the disciples. If your Bible is open, verse 31 of chapter 14, the disciples who said, we will never disown you, Jesus. And of course, we know that they did. Now, I say that not to be unkind, but because by now, many of us know in our studies of Mark, they should have cried out for mercy when Jesus gave the truth. Verse 27, you will all fall away. They didn't believe, in essence, the word of God, the word of Christ. So the disciples should have said, as soon as Jesus dropped that line, you are right, Jesus, your word is truth. Please help us. Please help me. I find myself so weak that I know that I can deny you. I know that I can disown you. Whatever is bad, I know I can do it against you, Jesus. Have mercy on me. Therefore, when the person in the sermon asked, how could Judas do that kind of thing question, he might as well have asked, how could I ever sin, right? How how could I ever sin against you, Jesus? I mean, think it through, because when we sin, specifically as Christians now, it's the same as being with Jesus 24 hours a day, seven days a week, some of us for years, And we know he sees us. We even have his spirit in us. And yet, in a point in time, we still do sin, knowing that every sin deserves the wrath and the punishment of God. Which is why what we see in Jesus alone is otherworldly. Jesus is living out the truth perfectly, which says, if dependence on God is the objective, and surely it is, that's why Jesus was praying, If dependence on God is the objective, then weakness is to his advantage. You understand this? If dependence on God is the objective, and it is, then weakness, Jesus, help me. Please, Jesus, have mercy on me. Instead of, there's no way I could do that to you, Jesus. Weakness is to the advantage. And you should understand that in light of what we've already learned from in Mark's gospel. We, we, in essence, in our hearts, we should be saying amen to that because we dare not study this passage or any passage in isolation. Because if you do that, then you'll get the sermon that I began with in the, uh, the introduction. However, when we study making sure that what is happening here to Jesus in, is viewed in, in what has already happened to Jesus elsewhere, and also viewed in light of what is coming to Jesus, given here and later on in other places in the New Testament, so here the disciples, chapter 14, they do not get it at all. They should, but they don't. Jesus told them, what would take place, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, about the cross. However, they don't get it. And they will not get it till post-Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when they'll see it clearly as Jesus promised them they would, when by God's grace, the Spirit of God would lead them, this is John chapter 16, to all truth, the truth they would then write down for us, New Testament, so that we wouldn't be clueless in relationship to the things and dependent, you know, on special people giving us secret messages that they've gotten from God or from a sermon which essentially divides humanity into the winners and losers. To the strong, I'll never do that. To the weak, oh, I know I can do that. So, so if dependence on God is the objective, weakness then is to the advantage of Jesus Christ. So how does Jesus Christ express his weakness? Well, last time he expresses it when he honestly, in the garden, wrestles with God in his prayer as he's feeling the weight of taking on humanity's sin. And that is why the prayer of Christ in the garden is so significant, right? All the shaking and shuddering in his prayer is out of weakness, so that when he says amen to that prayer, 
When he says, says amen, strength from God is then given. Okay? When the amen is said, then strength from God is given. And so you don't find Peter and you don't find Judas praying and pleading. And you don't find them seeing themselves weak. No, what you find is Peter and Judas in their humanity by nature, not praying and not pleading and not knowing their weakness and not believing the words of Jesus Christ when he said, you guys are all going to dump me soon. Why was that the case? Well, because they both were fixed on themselves. Both are so sure of themselves. Both want Christ, if you would, as a manageable addition to their life, but not as their whole life. Both externally seem strong. And I would listen carefully to this this morning, church. Externally, both seem strong. But they are just living out according to their own passions and their own pleasures of their own sin. Therefore, because of that, both in time, and you can almost say for all time, they're both going to be known as weak. As both, like you and I, failed Jesus. And both are a picture of you and I apart from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to know this morning that I cannot teach you how to never deny Jesus. So maybe I'm really, really stupid that I don't know how. That's a possibility. But I can teach you to look at what Jesus has accomplished for you by his suffering and death on the cross. I can pray and plead with you, keep your eyes on Jesus. You remember John Owen's classic quote, quote, the Christian can begin each day with the deeply uh, encouraging realization that we are accepted by God, not on the basis of our personal performance, but on the basis of the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's good news. So the good news is not you become a Christian, you stay a Christian by keeping a set of rules. Rather, you become a Christian and you stay a Christian by despairing of your own righteousness, throwing yourself as a helpless sinner on Christ for his righteousness, and he grants it to you. Listen to Spurgeon. It will always give a Christian great calm, quiet, ease, and peace. Okay, think of this. Okay, so you need calm and you need quiet. You need ease and you need peace. Spurgeon, it will always give a Christian great calm, quiet, ease, and peace to think of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't knock it until you've tried it. Why is that true? Because we're not the reason that the gospel works. Jesus Christ is the reason why the gospel works, and it does not work with triumphant strength, but honest weakness. Therefore, Jesus, when he says his amen in this prayer, will now be given grace and strength by God to suffer like no man has ever suffered. And all of that is the outworking of the exact will of God. Three points. Number one, Mark's narration. If your Bible is open, you'll see the scene there, verse 14, beginning in verse 43. Excuse me, chapter 14, verse 43. The scene is still in the Garden of Gethsemane. The time was more than likely in the hours just past midnight. So this would be early Friday morning. Judas, who knew Gethsemane well because Jesus often took the 12 there, he was present in the upper room and now, under the cover of darkness, he used the time between the prayer time and meal time to assemble a crowd, verse 43, to be with him in the garden. Now, Mark also makes the point that Judas was one of the twelve. You see that in verse 43. Indeed, it's pretty straightforward, and it's very honest. And you can see, because all four gospel writers make this known, it's kind of embarrassing. All the gospel writers highlight the fact that Judas was one of the twelve. 
to simply say Judas, after having so much time with Jesus, after being cared for by Jesus, given ministry to do by Jesus, calling Jesus rabbi and teacher, and now this abundance of kisses, can you believe it? He's turned against him. So in the darkness of night, in the garden, the one who knew Jesus well enough could identify him. In fact, John's Gospel, chapter 18, tells us all this positioning and posturing was completely unnecessary because Jesus knew they were coming. He even stepped forward and essentially said, gentlemen, how can I help you? This is Mark's Gospel. Whom do you seek? So we find Judas then doing his deed. Remember, while while he was the treasurer of the team, uh, the ministry team, he was a secret thief. And now, in darkness, he's an open traitor. Apparently, betraying Jesus came easier for Judas than confession of his sin. That's a warning to us all. In fact, believe it or not, King David and Judas, they were a lot alike. They both tried to cover their sin instead of confessing it. David with the girl, Judas stealing the gold. Now, What about the crowd who came with Judas? It was made up of soldiers and and we'll just say clergy, religious leaders. We know the the latter because John's gospel says that the scribes and the Pharisees were present with this group. You see it there. They had torches and lanterns. In other words, open flame and closed flame in order that the implements of their destruction, namely their swords and their clubs, could be seen by everyone there. And their overkill is kind of thick, right? So generally, soldiers carry swords, but there's a slight possibility that the Sanhedrin had their little goon squad, and that's where the clubs came from. It's weird to think of religious people having a goon squad, but it doesn't take that much thought to believe it. Nevertheless, the overkill here is thick. In the hearts of Jesus' enemies, it stands out. Matthew tells us it was a great crowd which came to arrest Jesus, essentially armed to the teeth. To which Jesus, verse 48, immediately asked them, this is a no-brainer question. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? In other words, you're loaded up with all kinds of weaponry. Why? Right? What have I done? What part of my ministry justifies all this behavior? Right? Was it when I healed the blind man? Was it when I raised the person from the dead? When I fed 4,000? When I fed 5,000? You know, all I ever did for that Roman centurion is he asked me to heal his servant, and I did that. Just like he asked. What's going on here? You probably don't know this, but maybe some of you do. There's a play. It's Hamlet. You know Hamlet, but there's a line in there that says, but conscience does make cowards of us all. That's Shakespeare. Conscience does make cowards of us all. That those who sent them, verse 43, the religious leaders, case against Jesus was all juiced up nonsense. It was all about jealousy. None of it was theology, right? And when a person feels uncertain of themselves, unsure of their role, and this is Judas, unsure of the rightness of it all, what do they typically do? Well, if they can, they they get a few others to come along with them, perhaps feeling their strength and their safety and their rightness and numbers to to overrule their, their conscience. Now, listen carefully. In other words, they can't do it by themselves. Their conscience won't let them. So they let their fallen nature, their humanity, overrule their conscience, which is the gift of divinity. Do you understand that? 
So their fallen nature says, you know, I may not be right here and, and I'm going to get some help. Their, their conscience is, is like, I am not right here. And they try to get more people to help them in their hurt. And what that is, is Judas and the religious leaders were impinging on the, the, the conscience of others, which, was, which is wrong. Right? Which is wrong. In fact, John's gospel says it gives us one more reason for all this because John tells us that the clergy and the soldiers with the clubs and the swords who came to capture him, that crowd, when they encountered the words of Jesus, they just fell back. They drew back and they fell to the ground. Think of that, almost like a wave. In fact, in the Old Testament, that was the customary response of the, uh, uh, of the manifestation or a theophany of the, of the presence of God. When people see God, they fall down. So if you read John's gospel, you'll discover that three times Jesus says in this little Q&A here, ego, I, I, me, I am, I am, I am. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? I am, and they all just fall down. Are you he? I am, I am. And they hear that, and they fall down. Okay, why is that significant? Because I am is God's answer to Moses' question. When Moses said, when I go to Pharaoh and ask him, who sent me, what do I tell him? And God says, tell them I am sent you. Therefore, the soldiers and the clergy, they realize this is different, that he is different. Yes, they're going to take Jesus, but when you read the gospel record, he's a different kind of captor. It's like he's helping them along, verse 49b, do you see it there? So that the scripture can be fulfilled. I mean, that is magnificent. This is God's will. This whole beatdown is God's will, and I'm going to help you perform this. So Jesus has composure here. The shakiness of the garden, that's done, right? He said his amen, strength from God is given, and he speaks truth to their perceived power. Verse 49, guys, I've been around every day. I was with you teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me then. What's changed, right? I've been doing this for quite some time now. What's changed? But again, God is in control here. It's just like the scripture says, verse 49b, it must be fulfilled, Okay, now what about the disciples? We talked about Judas, we talked about the clergy, the soldiers, and Jesus. Well, the disciples are all about to collapse like a broken chair, right? In fact, Luke's gospel records for us this sword moment that we just read about. That does not exclusively belong to Peter. That it was a they, as in the disciples, and not just thee, as in Peter, who said to Jesus, shall we strike with a sword? They all said it. And apparently before Jesus had a chance to answer, Peter answers the question with a, with a yes, and he chops off the ear of Malchus, who is the servant of the high priest. And we know from Luke's gospel that the last thing Jesus did before his hands were bound was to heal this man with the ear. Total control. Beauty emanating out of all his actions. Still under the cover of darkness, verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. Actually, again, there's a little bit more to this. John's gospel tells us that Jesus said to his captors, it's me you've come for. Let my people go. Which made me think of Moses again. He was put before Pharaoh. What did he say to Pharaoh? Let my people go. You see, Jesus is truly the good shepherd. He's protecting his sheep who is abandoning him. And he's there now on behalf of them. And what is that foreshadow? I mean, it doesn't take a genius. That's substitutionary atonement. Jesus is standing before us. 
And he says to the devil, and he says to death, and he says to the grave, let my people go. And they are, they're able to go. Quickly now, verse 51 and 52, to this young man wearing nothing but a linen garment. By the way, that would have been a very, very expensive garment. Now, we don't know exactly who this is. Chances, chances are it is Mark. The house of John Mark may have been the house where they had their final Passover meal. Possibly, if you kind of think it through, and he came out of the house in the context of what was unfolding. He followed Jesus, and now in the chaos of all this destruction, the soldiers and the clergy, people passing out, people getting up, people reach for him, take his garment. He runs, and the dear fellow is naked. Naked. Nakedness, by the way, outside the, the, the bounds of marriage, after the fall, that more than often equals shame in the Bible. Regardless, the main point is, is that there are no heroes here, right? The best of men are men at best. Everyone deserts Jesus. Okay, that's, that's the, the narration. Now, now the interpretation, because the question we're asking ourselves, okay, so how do we interpret this, right? What is Mark's aim here? What is the Holy Spirit, the divine author of this text, what's the aim? Why? Well, as we interpret this in light of the whole gospel and the surrounding verses, Mark wants us to know that Jesus is for real here, right? What, what he says happens does happen. They're going to leave, they leave. So what the Father wants to accomplish salvation for sinners, the point is that's going to be accomplished. That he has control over every one of these events and the control is real. And we have just a little bit of a hint of that. If your Bible's open, verse 41, we didn't really touch on this last time, but when Jesus said the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners and the Son of Man, remember Daniel 7, is the one who will reign forever and ever and his kingdom will expand forever and ever. And that Son of Man is alongside the Ancient of Days. And the title Son of Man, by the way, Jesus uses more about himself than any other title. And what Jesus is saying here is, I am the fulfillment of Daniel 7. I am the Son of Man. And so he moves from the garden into this treachery by the crowds led by Judas. And he's doing it. And here's the key. He is doing it willingly. He is not a helpless victim. He's doing it willingly. So the issue was settled in prayer. Okay, cross, no cross, cross, no cross, cross. And then as soon as the issue was settled, verse 42, let's do this. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. So Mark wants his readers to see that as Jesus advances through these events, he's not a helpless victim. He's not held in the grip of of dark forces of mere men, but rather he advances through this as a willing substitute, ready to see his Father's will done. If you like, you see Jesus' divinity and humanity bowing to his Father's sovereignty no matter the difficulty. That's a good sentence. I'm going to say it again. You see Jesus' divinity and humanity bowing to his Father's sovereignty no matter the difficulty. That's purposeful. This is a Jesus Christ who is in complete command. He's volunteering himself to that end. Now, loved ones, you take that. And when those dark days come, and they will come, and those dark days seem not to be mitigated by time, that time is changing nothing, and we're like, okay, what did I do? 
But what do I need to do? You see here in Mark that we can discover that God can be trusted when, if you would, the lights are turned off. He can be trusted. Did Jesus need to change anything about his behavior here? No. He just needed to stay in step with what the Father planned for him. Psalm 132, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a baby at his mother's breast, and I am content. Now, if you were a Christian, reading this for the first time in the church in Rome, and you're having it handed to you, it would be such a great comfort to know that this is the purposes of God being worked out in my life. Do, do you know the song, It Is Well With My Soul? Horatio Spafford, he was a lawyer and he was a deacon in his, or excuse me, an elder in his church. And do you remember the context of the song? So his son, dear son, dies two years of age. Right after that, the Chicago fire of 1871 ruins him financially. And then right after that, four of his daughters, right, they're on an ocean liner um, headed to Europe and the ocean liner sinks. He should have been on that boat, but he was delayed because of zoning issues having to do with the Chicago fire, kept him at home. And of course, his four girls were dead, drowned. Now, if you were to write a song after those kind of events, what would you write about? Think it through. What would you write about? Here's what he wrote about. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul, as opposed to Whose sin, Horatio, you or your wife, that all your kids are dead? As opposed to, well, sister, the reason why things are so dark is you just need to press in a little deeper with God and all that he has for you. And sister, your sin is getting in the way and you gotta walk in victory and you gotta, and you gotta, and you gotta, and you gotta, and and you're like, are you kidding me? Do you see any of that happening here in Christ? This darkness is the will of God. The hour of darkness, Jesus says, is upon us. And it's for our good. I don't know this to be true, but I bet you a bazillion dollars that somebody either thought or asked Horatio, okay, your boy's dead. The fire ruined your business. You're financially sunk. Your four girls are dead. What did you do, Horatio? What did you do to get all this going on in your life? I promise you, I would, yeah, a bazillion dollars. In fact, Paul would write to the Corinthian church the gospel, the fact that, My sin is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So Mark, as Jesus is moving forward in the story, he wants us to show something big. No, listen, he wants to show us something big, that the death of Jesus Christ was necessary, voluntary, propitiary, and substitutionary. It's necessary insofar as Jesus Christ is the only one who can die in the place of sinners. It's voluntary in as much as he goes willingly to the cross. 
It's propitiatory as he bears the Father's full wrath. There was no more wrath left for the Christian. And it expressed in the highest form of love. And what is the highest form of love the Father can give? The highest form of love that the Father can give is heaven's peace and perfect justice. Kissed a guilty world in love. In other words, here is love. This is John. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he gave his son as a propitiatory, as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In other words, God can't love you any better than he did at the cross. And you see, when we look at the cross, we see Christ. He's not a victim, but he's our substitute, dying in our place so that we will not have to endure the wrath of God on our sin. And we would do a massive disservice to this text when we don't pay attention to that. This is about Jesus. This is the gospel. This is good news. Look what Jesus is enduring voluntarily on your behalf. And that's got to mean something. And when we don't make that known, we become the equivalent of Peter with a sword, waving it around, causing a lot more harm than good. And I hope you understand that. Define. Peter is defying the purpose of God. He hurts others wrongly because he doesn't understand the cross. Jesus says, the reason I've come here is that this very hour may take place. So put your sword away, Peter. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So we got narration, the story, interpretation, what was going on. It's about the gospel, Christ. Finally, application, and just just a few, okay? First of all, the the corruption and moral blindness of Judas. So Judas reminds us that it's very, very possible to be outwardly attached to Jesus Christ and his church, but only to turn against both when he fails to meet our expectation, right? That was Judas. So a person turns against Christ when they discover that he's not what we wanted him to be. That was Judas. In some ways, it was Peter. Peter. And it's not a reach for me to say that that could be done just as sinister as Judas when a person hears the words of Jesus Christ, understands what's being said, rejects it or adds to it, even say when the application of the word of Christ is being impinged on their life, you know what, I don't feel God in this, right? So when the application of the truth is impinged upon their life, they're like, you know, I don't feel God in this, so it must be wrong. But all they're saying is Jesus is not doing what I want him to do. That was Judas, That was Peter. Whatever was going on in the mind of Jesus, the expectation he had for Jesus Christ was collapsed. And he elevates his word over Christ's words, and he stops following him. That's the first one. Second, we we may not be able to identify with Judas to that extent, but surely we can identify with the disciples, right? Take the whole story into account. One minute, it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You're the best. We're never going to leave you. The next minute, they're asleep, they're ashamed, and they're running. They're deserting Jesus, finding a place to hide. Now, have you ever been there? I've been there. Asleep, shamed, deserting Jesus. And aren't you glad that the work, and this is the Bible, right, Philippians, the work that he began in us, he's going to complete, and that every promises for 2 Corinthians 2, all the promises are yes and amen in Christ, and they're never forfeited in Christ. And aren't you glad, Romans 5 at the very end, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Jesus won't ditch the disciples. 
and he won't ditch us either. Thirdly, notice the forces of darkness against Jesus here are the trifecta, right? Politics, military might, religious authority. You get that? Politics, religious might, and um, military might, excuse me, and religious authority. And church history is replete with their occasions where you have the religious establishment combined with political authority seeking to silence the voice of Christ and his gospel in the world. Let me give you two examples. Uh, One, Nazi Germany, right? Remember that great scene where Hitler has the, the Lutheran church ministers in front of him in office? Nazi Germany is basically taking over Germany, and Hitler says to them, stay with the Nazi party, and we will take good care of your churches. There was only one man who stood up, it was Bonhoeffer, and he says, sir, Jesus Christ will take care of his church, not Adolf Hitler. Because he understood this, this evil of religious establishment and political authority. I mean, what does Bethlehem have to do with Rome? Nothing at all. Or, Here's a new one, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. So they had the religious leaders and they had the government and they were the ones who put into play the Inquisition. And the Inquisition said, in order to speed the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to make every Jew and every Gentile, or Gentile we have to make them Christian. Either they will die or we'll torture them to death so they can name Christ. But if they're not a Christian... They're dead. And one by one, the Jewish people, and one by one, the unbeliever go to meet their death. And that is not the way of Jesus Christ. Fourth application. Do you see the difference between carnal leadership and spiritual leadership? Carnal leadership, big chest, sword, we can do this, we can do this. Spiritual leadership, oh God, I don't want to do this. I need help. I'm breaking down here in the garden. And then when the amen is said, he takes care of people, even the people who abandoned him and hurt him. See the difference? Fifth, let's be honest enough to admit we can easily reach for the wrong weapons just like Peter in our duty, right? Remember Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, then my boys would fight. I could get angels, lots and lots of angels, and we could do this right. But it's not, so they don't. He didn't, so we can't. Paul would write to the Corinthian church, the weapons of our warfare are not, you know, the swords and clubs and all that silliness. The weapons of our warfare are chiefly two, prayer and the preaching of the word of God. How how are you going to change the world? We're going to pray a whole lot, and we're going to preach the word. We're going to gossip the word, personal conversations, public proclamation. We're going to take the good news. We're going to have a coffee and tell people about Jesus. Are you kidding me? No, I am not kidding you. I am not kidding you. That's the way. That's the weapons of our warfare. And I promise you, when any church in any generation loses that conviction that the weapons are given them by Jesus Christ, namely prayer and the preaching of his word, when they lose conviction, that's the way they'll try everything else to accomplish what only the Holy Spirit can through the praying and the preaching of Christ. You don't believe me? Read the book of Acts. Read church history. You're sensible people. You'll find out what I'm saying is true. Finally, Mark is simply showing us that the death of Jesus Christ is for sinners, right? The death of Christ is for sin so that sinners can be set free from their guilt. 
Christ on the cross, if we've said it again and again, will bear the full judgment that we deserve in order to receive the forgiveness that we do not deserve. He wants to show us that Jesus is in full control of these events. All this darkness, if you would, God is all over it. God is all over it. So the idea is, here's the good news. Now, do you, do you get this? Do you really get this, Christian? Now I'm talking to you. Do you get this so much that the message of the gospel just rolls off your tongue? Because you've worked through it, you've relied on it, you've guarded it, you thank God for it, you sing it in worship, and you have even suffered because of the gospel. You see, we, we live in an age where we assume that circumstances have to be right and smooth and peaceful if God's going to be in it and we can be effective. Anything's right, anything's smooth, anything peaceful. And we often call that wisdom. But we find in these verses, God is not waiting for circumstances to be right and smooth and peaceful. This is terrible and God is in it. This is treachery and God is in this. The purposes of God are unfolding and look how Jesus, pay attention, look how Jesus is living by faith. Trusting in his Father's will, his word, his plan. So then when I tell you, no matter what's happening like in you right now, things are great, things are not so great. When I tell you, loved ones, Jesus loves you. Can you say to him, yes, I know, because he died for me, because I'm a sinner, and he's my substitute. He's always going to be my substitute. So when the dark days come, I'm not confused. I'm just Christian. And when the good days come, I'm not self-righteous. I'm just a Christian. That's where I stopped. And I said, you know, God, I think I need a better ending. So yesterday I was rereading this. I'm going to end reading you this quote. It's from a book, The Cross He Bore. God has arranged all of the preceding centuries, and he's talking about the cross here. God has arranged all of the preceding centuries, all of the intervolutions of time, all the events from Genesis 1-1 up to this moment, has arranged and molded them, has had them converge in such a way that there would be a place for this hour, the hour in which his son will be bound. He allowed neither the forces above nor the forces below to tamper with the clock of history. Now, now listen carefully to the rest, because it makes me love Jesus more. He directed the battles of Caesar, the conflicts of kings, the migration of peoples, the world wars, the courses of stars and sun and moon, the change of the epochs and the complex movements of all things in the world in such a way that this hour would come and had to come to rescue us from our sin. Spend a few hours thinking about that. Let's pray. We have a song to sing and we have communion to take. So let's prepare our hearts for for both those things. God, forgive us when we 
have feelings, have thoughts that you don't love us enough. That what we have right now is not enough. That what we want and still don't have is because something that we've left undone. Help us to think better. Help us to think like a Christian. And help us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Amen.